Omar Alakhed is an author and journalist. Born in Egypt, having grown up in Qatar and moved to Canada as a teenager, he now lives in the United States. His journalism career coincided with the start of the War on Terror, and over the following decade, he reported from Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and many other locations around the world. His debut novel, American War, is an international bestseller and has been translated into 13 languages. Listed as one of the best books of the year by the New York Times, Washington Post, GQ, NPR, Esquire, and was selected by the BBC as one of 100 novels that changed our world. He will be reading two excerpts from two separate books, American War and What Strange Paradise. He will be accompanied by an original story-bound remix. Hi, my name is Omar Lackhead. I'm an author based in Portland, Oregon. And this is the prologue to my debut novel, American War. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Omar Lackhead read an excerpt from the prologue of his debut novel, American War. When I was young, I collected postcards. I kept them in the shoebox under my bed in the orphanage. Later, when I moved into my first home in New Anchorage, I stored the shoebox at the bottom of an old oil drum in my crumbling tool shed. Having spent most of my life studying the history of war, I found some sense of balance in collecting snapshots of the world that was idealized and serene. Sometimes I thought about getting rid of the old oil drum. I worried someone, a colleague from the university perhaps, 
would see it and think it a kind of petulant political statement, like the occasional secessionist flag or gutted muscle car outside houses in the old red country. Impotent trinkets of rebellion, touchstones of a ruined and ruinous past. I am, after all, a southerner by birth, and even though I arrived in the neutral country at the age of six and never spoke to anyone about my life before then, I couldn't rule out the possibility that some of my colleagues secretly believed I still had a little bit of the rebel red in my blood. My favorite postcards are from the 2030s and 2040s, the last decades before the planet turned on the country and the country turned on itself. They featured pictures of the great ocean beaches before rising waters took them. Images of the southwest before it turned to embers. Photographs of the Midwestern plains, endless and empty under bluest sky, before the inland exodus filled them with the coastal displaced. A visual reminder of America as it existed in the first half of the 21st century. Soaring. Roaring. Oblivious. I remember the first postcard I bought. It was a photo of old Anchorage. The city's waterfront is thick with fresh snowfall. The water speckled with shelves of ice. The sun low-strung behind the mountains. I was six years old when I saw my first real Alaskan sunset. I stood on the deck of the smuggler's skiff, a sun-bitten Georgia boy, a refugee. I remember feeling the strange white flakes on my eyelashes, the involuntary rattle of my teeth, feeling for the first time in my life cold. I saw near the tops of the mountains that frozen yoke suspended in the sky and I thought I had reached the very terminus of the living world, the very end of movement. I belong to what they call the miraculous generation. Those born in the years between the start of the Second Civil War in 2074 and its end in 2093. Some extend the definition further including those born during the decade-long plague that followed the end of the war. This country has a long history of defining its generations by the conflicts that should have killed them. And my generation is no exception. We are the few who escaped the wrath of the homicide bombers and the warring birds, the few who were spirited into well-stocked cellars or tornado shelters before the reunification plague spread across the continent. The few who were just plain lucky. I've spent my professional career studying this country's bloody war with itself. I've written academic papers and magazine articles, headlined myriad symposiums and workshops. I've studied all the surviving source documents, congressional reports, oral histories, harrowing testimony of the plague survivors. I've reconstructed the infamous events of Reunification Day, when one of the South's last remaining rebels managed to sneak into the Union capital and unleash the sickness that cast the country into a decade of death. It is estimated that 11 million people died in the war, 
and almost ten times that number in the plague that followed. I've received countless letters from readers and critics taking issue with all manner of historical minutiae, whether the rebels were really responsible for a particular homicide bombing, whether the massacre at such and such really was as bad as the southern propagandists claim. My files contain hundreds of such correspondences, all variations on the same theme, that I, a coddled new Anchorage northerner, a neutral country elite who'd never seen a day of real fighting, don't know the first thing about the war. But there are things I know that nobody else knows. I know because she told me, and my knowing makes me complicit. Now, as I near the end of my life, I've been inspecting the accumulated miscellanea of my youth. Recently, I found that first postcard I bought. It's been more than a hundred years since its photograph was taken. All but the sea and the mountains are gone. New Anchorage, a sprawl of low buildings and affluent suburbs nestled at the foot of the hills, has moved further inland over the years. The docks where I once arrived as a disoriented war orphan have been raised and reinforced time and time again. And where once there stood wharfs of knotted wood, there are now modular platforms, designed to be dismantled and relocated quickly. Fierce storms come without warning. Sometimes I stroll along the new Anchorage waterfront, past the wharf and the harbor. It's the closest I can come now to my original arrival point in the neutral country without renting a scavenger's boat. My doctor says it's good to walk regularly and that I should try to keep doing so as long as it doesn't cause me pain. I suspect this is the sort of harmless pablum he feeds all his terminal patients. Those who long ago graduated from this will help to this can't hurt. It's a strange thing to be dying. For so long, I thought the end of my life would come suddenly, when the plague found its way north to neutral country, or the red rebelled once more and we were plunged into another bout of fratricide. Instead, I've been sentenced to that most ordinary of deaths, an overabundance of malfunctioning cells. I read once that a moderately ravenous cancer is, in a pragmatic sense, a decent way to die. Not so prolonged as to entail years of suffering, but affording enough time that one might have a chance to make the necessary arrangements. To say what needs to be said. It hasn't snowed in years. But every now and then in late January, we'll get a fractal of frost crawling up the windows. On those days, I like to go out to the waterfront and watch my breath hang in the air. I feel unburdened. I am no longer afraid. I stand at the edge of the boardwalk and watch the water. I think of all the things it has taken and all that was taken from me. Sometimes I stare out at the sea for hours, well past dark, until I am elsewhere in time and elsewhere in place back in the battered red country where I was born. And that's when I see her again, rising out of the water. 
she is exactly as I remember her, a hulking bronzed body, her back lined with ashen scars, each one a testimony to the torture she was made to endure, the secret crimes committed against her. She rises, a flesh monolith reborn from the severed belly of the savannah, and I am a child again, yet to be taken from my parents and my home, yet to be betrayed. I am back home by the riverbank, and I am happy, and I still love her. My secret is, I still love her. This isn't a story about war. It's about ruin. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from the song Saltwater by Blood Red Sun. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Omar Alakid. And now we return from our break as Omar reads from his newest novel, What Strange Paradise. I'm trying to unlearn The child lies on the shore. All around him the beach is littered with the wreckage of the boat and the wreckage of its passengers. Shards of decking, knapsacks cleaved and gutted, bodies frozen in unnatural contortion. Dispossessed of nightfall's temporary burial, the dead ferment in decency. There's too much of spring in the day, too much light. Face down with his arms outstretched, the child appears from a distance as though playing at flight. And so too in the bodies that surround him, though distended with seawater and hardening, there flicker the remnants of some silent levitation, a severance from the laws of being. The sea is tranquil now, the storm has passed. The island, despite the debris, is calm. A pair of plump, orange-necked birds, stragglers from a northbound flock, take rest on the lamppost from which hangs one end of a police cordon. In the breaks between the wailing of the sirens and the murmur of the onlookers, they can be heard singing. The species is not unique to the island, 
nor the island to the species. But the birds, when they stop here, change the pitch of their songs. The call is an octave higher, a sharp, throat-scraping thing. In time, a crowd gathers near the site of the shipwreck, tourists and locals alike. People watch. The eldest of them, an arthritic fisherman driven in recent years by plummeting cherub fish stocks to kitchen work at a nearby resort, says that it's never been like this before on the island. Other locals nod, because even though the history of this place is that of violent endings, of galleys flipped over the axes of their oars, and fishing skiffs tangled in their own netting, and once during the war, an empty Higgins lander sheared to ribbons by shrapnel, the old man is still in his own way right. These are foreign dead. No one can remember exactly when they first started washing up along the eastern coast. But in the last year, it has happened with such frequency that many of the nations on whose tourists the island's economy depends have issued travel advisories. The hotels and resorts in turn have offered discounts. Between them, the Coast Guard and the moor keep a partial count of the dead. And as of this morning, it stands at 1,026. But this number is as much an abstraction as the dead themselves are to the people who live here, to whom all the shipwrecks of the previous year are a single shipwreck, all the bodies a single body. Three officers from the municipal police force pull a long strip of caution tape along the breadth of the walkway that leads from the road to the beach. Another three wrestle with large sheets of blue boat cover canvas trying to build a curtain between the dead and their audience. In this way, the destruction takes on an air of queer unreality, a stage play bled of movement, a fairy tale upturned. The officers, all of them young and impatient, manage to tether the fabric to a couple of lampposts from which the orange-necked birds whistle and flee. But even stretched to near tearing, the canvas does little to hide the dead from view. Some of the onlookers shuffle awkwardly to the far end of the parking lot, where there's still an acute line of sight between the draping and four television news trucks. Others climb on top of parked cars and sweep their cameras across the width of the beach, some with their backs to the carnage, their own faces occupying the center of the recording. The dead become the property of the living. Oriented as they are, Many of the shipwrecked bodies appear as though to have been spat up landward by the sea, or of their own volition to have walked out from its depth and then collapsed a few feet later. Except the child. Relative to the others, he is inverted, his head closest to the lapping waves, his feet nestled into the warmer, lighter sand that remains dry even at highest tide. The music you're hearing in this episode was sampled from the song In Remembrance by Silver Maple. And now for our final break. You are listening to Storybound with Omar Lackett. 
And now we continue our excerpt from What Strange Paradise. A wave brushes gently against the child's hair. He opens his eyes. At first he sees nothing, his sight hampered by the sting of salt and sand and strands of his own matted hair in his eyes. His surroundings appear to him as if behind frosted glass or on the remembering end of a dream. But other senses awake. He hears the sound of the sea, tame and metronomic. And beneath that, the hushed conversation of two men, inching closer to where he lies. The child blinks the silt from his eyes. The world begins to take shape. To his left, the beach curves in a long, smooth crescent until it disappears from view behind the rise of a rocky hill lined with thin, palm-like trees. It is a beautiful place, tropical and serene. For a moment he doesn't register the dead, only their belongings. Ball caps and cell phones and sticks of lip balm and forged identification cards tucked into the cheapest kind of waterproof container. Tied up party balloons, bright orange life vests bloated as blisters, some wrapped around their owners, others unclaimed. A phrase book, a pair of socks. The boy's neck is stiff and it hurts to move, but he turns slightly in the direction of the sea. In the shallow sits a rubber dinghy outfitted with police lights. Farther out, the water sheds its sandy complexion and turns a turquoise of such clarity that the tourist sailboats seem to float atop their own shadows. Two men approach. Baggy white containment suits cover their bodies and white gloves their hands and white masks their faces. And vaguely they remind the boy of astronauts. They move slowly around and over the bodies, occasionally nudging at them with their feet and waiting for a response. Some of the corpses they inspect wear small glittering things around their fingers or necks. The boy watches, unmoving, as the masked workers bend down and carefully pocket anything that sparkles. They speak a language he doesn't understand. They move toward him. The boy doesn't take his eyes off them. His clothes soaked with salt water hold fast to his frame. He flicks his toes in the tiny puddles collected in his shoes. His jaw aches. He lifts his head from the sand. He rises. Seeing him, one of the two workers takes off his face mask and yells. The words mean nothing to the boy, but by the gesticulations he gathers that he is being ordered not to move. The man turns, first to his colleague, and then, his voice even louder now, to the officers stationed at the edge of the beach. Once alerted, they begin to sprint in the boy's direction. The boy looks around him. To his left, 
past where the beach ends at a small gravel road, packed with police cars and ambulances and trucks with large satellites affixed to their roofs. There stands a dense forest of the same palm-like trees that bookend the far hillside. Their crowning leaflets like the skeletal remains of some many-limbed starfish or a firework mid-burst. Everywhere else the sun shines brightly, but in the shade of the canopy there is a darkened thicket, perhaps a hiding place. The men rush closer, yelling alien things. Pinned between the water and the land, the child turns towards the sheltering trees. He runs. This story was a combination of two excerpts from two separate novels, American War and What Strange Paradise. What Strange Paradise is now available for pre-order through your favorite local bookseller, and American War is available right now. Order both, and you can read one while you wait for the other to arrive. What Strange Paradise will release on July 20th. The piano at the start of Act 1 was played by Jude, that's me. And the music sampled in this episode was by Blood Red Sun, Silver Maple, Gavin Luke, and Deans. Thank you to Omar Lackhead for recording with us. Thank you to our friends at Penguin Random House. And thank you to Epidemic Sound. This episode was mixed by Tim Carplus. Production assistance is provided by Jordan Aaron. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Poglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. If you haven't already... Please subscribe to the show. New episodes will arrive every Tuesday into your podcast feed. We'll see you next week. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.